welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your leafy green host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined by my gardening wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Are you the jolly green giant? I have been accused of that many times. Okay, thought so. Well, when you're six foot three, you get called all kinds of nicknames. <laughs> well, for other news other than my childhood trauma, I do want to remind you that our YouTube channel is up and running with over 200 TikTok videos already transferred over. And I am working on editing the podcast so that we can start having visual versions of our podcast on there as well. So if you're the type that likes to see visualizations and such of the podcast, that'll be on the YouTube shortly. And also, hopefully, I'll start being able to add our Thursday interview sessions, which honestly are going very well. I think so. So, yeah, we've done our first two already, and we've done interviews with a large number of other people, so I think I almost have enough interviews to finish out the rest of this year. That's awesome. But we still need listener stories, so if you have your own encounter with a creature in the woods, a ghost story, a family ghost story, or maybe you have seen a light in the sky... Please email us or get in touch with us through our social media. Share your story. Either write it down and we'll tell it for you or we'll record your version of it to place on our Thursday interviews. Uh, please, we really want to hear you know the listener stories that are out there. Okay, Goldie Ann. Oh, God. That's your favorite time of the episode. I have a whole garden worth of cryptid plants for today's episode. Oh, yeah? But I was wondering, do you know which is the fiercest type of plant? Uh, the Venus flytrap. That's a close second. Okay. But the fiercest type of plant? A dandelion. Oh, God. Roar. Oh, please. The roar didn't make it better? Mm-mm. Roars always make it better. A roar kind of made it a little more comical. Yes, I agree. Okay, thank you. Well, today's episode involves stories of plants that have the ability and history of attacking people that may be frightening to some as they are surreal to others. We are storytellers who have gathered information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. But let us begin. The majority of urban legends and stories that we tell about on this podcast are creatures that range from the scaly to the hairy. They do have one thing in common, however, in that they are all former people or animals. What about those that involve the plant kingdom? It is though we see the forest, but neglect the trees within. Many of the most bizarre encounters told involve plants with the ability to not only move, but eat and even speak. Feed me, Seymour. Feed. Oh, wait, not that one. Oh, no. Trust me, that one. <laughs> okay. With as little as we really know about the various species of plants growing in our own backyards, it is not that impossible that some of the most amazing cryptids may be 
of the green kind. Join us today as we wander within the mist to explore tales of the plant cryptids and whether or not it is easy being green. <laughs> oh, gosh. Sorry. <laughs> I'm glad I got you laughing. Chapter 1, The Vegetable Man. The first of these plant creatures was brought to us in the book Alien Meetings by Brad Steiger. During the waning hours of a beautiful day in July of 1968, in the woods surrounding Fairmont, West Virginia, a bow hunter, a former Air Force soldier by the name of Jennings Frederick, was hunting woodchucks. As he moved through the woods in search of game, Frederick was about to call it a day because of a lack of success. It was at that moment that he heard an odd noise. He would later describe the sound as a high-pitched jabbering, much like that of a recording running at an exaggerated speed. The voice seemed to be saying, You need not fear me. I wish to communicate. I come as a friend. We know of you all. I come in peace. I wish medical assistance. I need your help. Frederick was at completely at a loss as to where the voice was coming from. The hunter was not sure if he heard it or he had picked up the message through telepathy. It seemed as if the sound was all around him. He did try to track down the source of the sound, and that is when he came face to face with something he never expected. The vegetable man was said to be very tall, possibly over seven feet. He was thin with a semi-humanoid shape. It possessed similar facial features as a person, such as having ears which were long and eyes but being yellow and slanted. The creature also appeared to be partially plant-based in shape and color, for it was thin and green, much like a reed. Its arms were thin, no bigger around than a quarter, and they each ended in hands that had three seven-inch long fingers with needle-like thorn tips and suction cups along the edges. Hmm. The huntsman would go on to say that the being looked weakened and almost sickly. As he made his way closer to the being, the jabbering increased. Jennings noticed that the eyes of the creature would pulse from red to yellow. They were rotating in a hypnotic orange circles. Jennings then felt a pain in his hand that he believed that he had been tangled in a briar patch until he realized that the vegetable man had gripped his hands and the thorns covering its fingers were drawing blood. The creature sprang at him and covered its mesmerized victim up with its surprisingly strong arms. Jennings was frozen in place, held tight by the suction cups on the arms. The creature pierced his skin with the thorns on its fingers, and while it drained blood from him, Frederick found himself enthralled by looking into the flashing colors of the creature's eyes. The requested medical assistance that the creature required turned out to be a blood transfusion from Jennings. <laughs> Jesus. 
After only about a minute, and as quickly as it attacked, the vegetable man released its victim and sprinted away up a hill. It moved so quickly that it covered more than 25 feet with each step. Whatever it was that it needed from Jennings, it seemed to have got and was now completely healed. Jennings' arm began to ache again as he turned to head for home after his strange experience. He then heard a deep humming sound from the other side of the hill. He thought that it must have been the sound of the vegetable man taking off in some manner of flying saucer or whatever craft it had arrived to this planet in. When the hunter had finally made it home after his ordeal, he decided that, rather than being ridiculed and made fun of, he would tell his family that he had been scratched up by falling into a briar patch. It would be months before he would work up the nerve to relate his tale to anyone else. To date, the 1968 encounter is the only sighting of the Vegetable Man. So the guy was probably just drunk in the woods. And he fell into a briar patch. That would kind of fit into the stereotypical hunter out in the woods and not succeeding in catching anything. But this is his story in that he was attacked by a green vegetable man. However... This creature is not going to be the only example of plant cryptids in our garden of the paranormal. How about chapter two, the Madagascar tree? Uh This one comes from Edmund Sponser for the New York World, who wrote an article regarding another plant monster on April 26th of 1874. He claimed to have discovered the origin of a creature in an issue of Graf and Walter's magazine, published in Germany. The article contained a letter from the discoverer, an eminent botanist named Karl Leisch, to a colleague, Dr. Omelius Fradlowski. The letter that he found described how, while traveling through Madagascar, Dr. Leisch had come into a region of the country occupied by the Makotos a tribe of inhospitable savages of whom little was known. As Leish and his party noticed that the members of the Makoto's tribe silently emerged from the jungle, they were following behind them as they made their way. They then proceeded to come to a spot where a stream wound through the forest, and here, the explorers and the tribe encountered the most singular of trees. According to Leish, who provided a detailed description of it, he said, quote, If you can imagine a pineapple, eight feet high and thick in proportion, resting on its base and void of any leaves, you will have a good idea of the trunk of this tree, which, however, was not the color of a banana, but a dark, dingy brown, and apparently its bark was as hard as iron. From the very top, at least two feet in diameter, eight leaves hung to the ground, almost 11 or 12 feet long, tapering to a sharp point that looked like a cow's horn. The top of the plant was not a flower, but a receptacle, and there exuding inside of that dip was a clear, trickly liquid, honey-sweet 
and possessed of violent, intoxicating, and sporific properties. Anyone who got too close was said to become drunk and stuporous. From underneath the top of the tree were a series of long, hairy green tendrils. These stretched out in every direction towards the sky. They were seven to eight feet long each, and they tapered from four inches to merely half an inch in diameter. Yet, they were stretched out so stiffly that they resembled iron rods reaching towards the sky. The rods twirled and twisted with an incessant motion, almost suggesting that they were serpents dancing on their tails. It was after the discovering of this tree that Leish witnessed the most terrifying aspect of the Madagascar tree's purpose. This is a horrible visualization. In what way? Do you have any pictures of it? I'm probably sure I could come up with some. Okay. But basically you're looking at a big fat trunk yeah. and the top having tendrils reaching down around it. Oh, I know. That's what I mean. I can see it in my mind. I want to see what it you know, other people see. Well, then I will find a picture and put it in the show notes. Cool. What I, what I don't have pictures of is what happened next. Uh-oh. Well, it seems that the Makotos, when they saw the Madagascar tree, began shouting, Tepe! Tepe! Then they surrounded one of their women and forced her at javelin point to climb the tree until she reached the very top of the cone that contained the sweetly smelling liquid. To sick, to sick, the Makotos cried, which meant, drink, drink. Obediently, the woman drank of the liquid at the top, and then, almost instantly, the slender branches of the tree came alive. They quivered and moved on their own and seized the woman at the top of the tree. The slender, delicate vines, with the fury of starved serpents, quivered a moment over her head. Then, as if on instinct, with a demonic intelligence, they fastened upon her in sudden coils round and round her neck and arms. She screamed, but the tendrils gripped her tighter and tighter. They strangled her until her cries became a gurgled moan. The tendrils, one after another, like great green serpents, with brutal energy and infernal rapidness, they rose and retracted themselves and wrapped her around in fold after all fold, ever tightening with cruel swiftness and savage tenacity of an anaconda fastening upon their prey. The constriction of the vines caused the fluid of the tree to stream down its trunk. Also, caused the crushing of its victim. The sap and the blood mixed together, oozing the viscera of the victim. The Makoto tribe rushed forward to drink this mixture of blood and tree fluid. Then, according to Dr. Leish, there ensued a grotesque and indescribable hideous orgy. Oh boy! Leish concluded his letter by explaining that he studied the cadaverous tree for three more weeks, during which time he found several other, smaller specimens of it in the forest. He saw one of the trees even eat a lemur. 
Further expeditions into the jungles of Madagascar have been unsuccessful in their attempts to bring back a specimen of this monstrous plant. Madagascar, Land of the Man-Eating Tree, is a book that provided even more information about this carnivorous plant. It was written by Chase Osborne, who had been a governor of Michigan. Osborne claimed that both the tribes and missionaries in Madagascar knew about the hideous tree, and he also repeated the above Leish recount. Now, the validity of the existence of such a creature continues to be debated. Even when the current literature journal came out 14 years later after the story, it claimed that everything was a work of fiction by Edmund Spencer. Others are not quite so sure which to believe. I think that's crazy. Very scary. Could you imagine if, there, if it was real? Well, some people think it is. I don't. <laughs> well, then I will let that you lead. Weird. The, I'm going to let you lead the way then when we go to Madagascar. But we won't have to travel to Madagascar to find another tale of a plant-like creature. There are legends of another one within the deserts of the American Southwest. Oh, boy. Chapter 3, The Cactus Cat. Meow. According to an article entitled The Cactus Cat by Henry H. Tryon in 1939's Fearsome Critters, the nearly extinct cactus cat is said to be a creature that inhabits the American Southwest states such as California, Nevada, and New Mexico with a few sightings in Colorado. These are particularly in the area near Tucson and Prescott, though some do extend into Mexico as well. It was well known to the Pueblo and Navajo country. It's kind of weird. So it's California, Nevada, New Mexico, and Colorado. That doesn't make sense. Well, it's kind of wherever these critters, I guess, can find deserts. Or at least the storytellers are. I'm sorry? In Colorado? In what, Pueblo, Pueblo, Colorado? <laughs> Maybe. Well, the thing that these states all do have in common is the description of the creature. Okay. The cactus cat is a creature that resembles a bobcat, with its body covered in thorny hair, which grows particularly long, sharp, and rigid, even on the ears and tail. These thorns make it resemble a cactus in appearance. They branch in a cactus-like fashion, having scattered thorny hairs like those growing on the ears. The distal portions of the foreleg radial bones are formed into two sharp knife-like blades. So where they have thorns on the rest of their bodies, on the forelegs are knife-like thorns. Okay, this is weird. I can't even picture this one. Well, imagine a cat that has thorns growing all out of it. So kind of a blend between a porcupine and a cat. This creature skillfully employs these blades in making deep, slanting slashes at the base of giant cacti. He will perform a number of these cuts in plants in a circular pattern nearly 80 chains long. But this is a plant, not a cat, right? It's kind of a blend between the two. It's not, no one's quite sure if the cactus cat is a cactus or if it's a cat that looks like a cactus. Okay. But what they do know is that it'll cut into a cactus, move on to another one until it makes a wide circle. Then when it comes back to the beginning, 
the sap that is exuded from the cacti first slash has fermented into a sweet, intoxicating liquid, which the cactus cat laps up as he makes his second trip around. So he's now colic. Well, by the time he finishes this second trip around, he is soundly drunk and pickled. <laughs> then he will usually waltz off into the desert, grating the bony forelegs across each other in accompaniment of his delighted yowls. I bet. So he can be very noisy once he's drunk. <laughs> now, in the earlier days, when the animal was more common, this feeding behavior would sometimes be disturbed by thirsty cowboys, as those that had the knowledge of how the cat's activities worked would often watch for it to make the first cut, and then they would drink from the cactus themselves. So now you have a bunch of drunk cowboys out in the desert. This denied the animal a meal, which was contributed to the decline of the cactus cat's population. So these drunk cowboys caused the cactus cat to become nearly extinct. I should warn you, though, that this activity also has its own drawbacks to people, as cactus cats were known to be incredibly territorial. Any person caught drinking from one of their cactus would be attacked, which could prove quite harmful given their spiny hide. I totally recommend Googling cactus cat. Are you looking at the pictures? Yes. They are cute. I mean, I did find some, but, you know, some of the, you know, ones that aren't actually the cactus cat are cute. Well. Ew, look at this one. Well, those that were attacked by a cactus cat, their bodies would be found in the sand with reddish welts appearing on their hide. Such deaths were usually attributed to a severe attack of prickly heat. But the old timers knew better. They knew it was caused by attacks of the cactus cat. Now, if a cactus cat is left undisturbed, they will make their homes inside of a hollowed-out saguro cactus. They'll feed on the cactus juice and eat any insects that land on the plant. When they're ready to mate, males will carve up the cactus even further and let the scent of the fermented cactus juice draw in their mates. So they're basically trying to get their females drunk. Well, yeah. How else are they going to do it? Well, they do mate for life, and the lifespan of a cactus cat is said to be about 20 to 30 years. When producing young, they will be born in a litter just like normal cats and are often indistinguishable from a regular cat when born because they are blind and they don't have the spiny fur at that time. Hmm. Do you imagine finding one and taking it home? A kitten? Yeah. And then it starts growing in uh, spines and blades on it? That could be a little bit intimidating. The good news, or bad news, how you want to look at it, is that cactus cats are generally assumed to be fictional. Ah, well, darn. Well, they're tall tales of a creature created by the cowboys and the pioneers of the 19th century. What you saw, Goldie Ann, is that today you can purchase cactus plants shaped like the legendary creature to have for your very own. So not all plant cryptids are as cute and cuddly as the cactus cat. Some can be quite eerie. Um, I want one. Uh, do you want a cactus that's shaped like a cat or do you want a cactus cat? Um, I want a cactus cat. 
Could you imagine accidentally? Oh, no, no, no. Stepping on him? <laughs> or worse, uh, we have a cat of our own, Obi, and he loves to jump on our laps. And Could you imagine one bed. of these doing that? Yeah. That, wouldn't, that would not last long. Chapter 4, The Moss Man. Not to be confused with Mothman. No, not definitely not the Mothman. Now, the Louisiana has their version of a Mothman known as Père Malfant. But we're going to talk about the plant cryptid that has been spotted in and around the state of Florida. Oh. The legend of Florida's Mothman has been around for quite some time and may even date back to the 1500s. Over the years, indigenous tribes around Crystal River area have passed down stories of seeing a large creature covered in moss with eyes that burn like fire. Goldian and I have actually kayaked Crystal River, so I guess the next time we go, we'll have to be a little bit more observant to the trees and moss around us. Yeah, because I was just thinking, remember when we were, no, that was Wakiba. Never mind. Well, I mean, that could be the same, same thing, yeah. We were, we were uh, kayaking down Waikiba, and you got stuck in that big plant, and I was scared. <laughs> yes, but it didn't move, and it didn't have eyes. No, but it was a big plant. Well, in most cases, the sightings of a moss man have been around bodies of water, such as the Florida Cavern State Park. This six to seven and a half foot tall creature is described as a large humanoid entity. He weighs about 200 to 450 pounds, but he's entirely covered in green moss or foliage. Oh, I saw that movie. This you have. (laughs) He has amber eyes that shine in the night, giving it an eerie stare. Theories suggest that the creature grew moss-like appendages to blend in with its surroundings. This camouflage enables it to stay hidden. In the late 1800s, Clay County Sheriff Peeler had led a posse to hunt for a large man-like beast with a rank odor and covered with swamp grass. It seems that this creature that they were hunting had been raiding the rabbit pens in the area. And although they were unsuccessful in capturing the moss man, they did kill a few large alligators. That's rude. The first modern sighting of the Moss Man was in 1978 when a couple were enjoying their time on a beach. They noticed a human-shaped figure lying down by the rocks near the coastline. At the time, they believed that the figure was wearing a raincoat, which was odd, but not so strange that they were worried about it. It was the first known Florida man. Well, this Florida man... (laughs) Uh, They didn't take much notice of him until he stood up and stared at the couple with shining red eyes. What they had believed to be a raincoat was a layer of green leafy foliage that was actually attached to its skin. The couple scrambled to their feet and ran away from the beach as quickly as they could. When they came back with the authorities, all that remained was a bit of Spanish moss on the ground. In the next two years, it was spotted on several occasions. Okay. One of the best stories about this was an elderly couple who were having a quiet stroll late one evening in 1980. The place that they were walking is known as Red Reef Park, a 67-acre coastal park built for environmental education purposes, and it has a 20-acre nature center. 
During the walk, the woman noticed a green shroud hidden amongst the foliage. She leaned forward to get a closer look at what she thought was a bird. Then she got the shock of her life when the creature spun around and stared back at her with its amber eyes. Of course, the elderly couple ran off as fast as their legs could carry them. They reported the sighting, but again, by the time they had gotten there, the creature had run away. How can such a creature that be part animal, part man, and part plant? According to a veteran park ranger at the Red Reef Park, there is a legend of an ancient Native American curse that dates back hundreds of years ago. According to this legend, for reasons unknown, a man had kidnapped and raped an Indian princess. Then, he killed her by cutting off her head and tied it to a tree. The princess's long hair from her severed head took roots into the tree itself, and over time, her spirit became infused with all the plant life in the area. The vegetation using the spiritual power of the long-dead Indian princess, drove the Spanish out of the region. So, inspired by the story of the princess and the bloody tale of her revenge, a Florida witch doctor brought to life a terrible creature made of seaweed to seek out any remaining Spaniards and kill them all. Wow. So it's possible the Mossman's not even a creature, but actually a ghost. Kind of like the Jersey Devil. The Jersey Devil being a demon, a supernatural creature, yeah. It could be the very same kind of category. Now, I've given you a couple of different stories about plant-like creatures. Right. They also have their effects on popular culture. The idea of plant creatures is fascinating, not only in the documented cases of people citing them, but such creatures also have their use in pop culture. As you mentioned from the very beginning, there is Audrey too, the mean green mother from outer space. You can see a lot of the Madagascar man-eating tree in Audrey because this meat-eating plant of the 1986 film Little Shop of Horrors is the classic representation of a carnivorous monster plant. As you said, the most dangerous plant, according to you, is a Venus flytrap. Right. Which is very small, only eats insects. But how many different movies have you seen that you have a Venus flytrap or a creature similar to it that's actually large enough to eat a human? Exactly. It had, one hasn't been found yet, but if the stories of the Madagascar tree creature are correct, then there might be an Audrey 2 out there. The Audrey 2 planning to use its powers of persuasion to take over the entire world. And depending on which version of the film you see, this plant does and does not succeed. <laughs> Next, similar to the Mossman creature, is DC Comics Swamp Thing or Marvel Comics Man Thing. Swamp Thing is a humanoid plant elemental creature which fights to protect his swamp home, the environment in general, and humanity from various supernatural or terrorist threats. This comic book is an eco-warrior. And it has been in various animated and live-action films. There's a very cheesy Swamp Thing movie and a sequel to boot. With which, Heather Locklear? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's even had multiple attempts at live-action television series, so I know of twice they've tried to make a TV show about him as well. Right. So he's kind of similar to how the Moss Man is. On the other side, you have the Man-Thing, which is the Marvel equivalent. This is Dr. Theodore Ted Salas, who's a large, empathic, humanoid swamp monster that lives in the Florida Everglades near Seminole Reservation of Florida. Ah, so he's very similar to uh, the Moss Man. He was utilized in a film called Man Thing, which was made in 2005, generally forgotten. But he was much better represented in the recent Werewolf by Night special on Disney Plus. And they did an amazing job on that on him in that uh, show. I haven't seen that. Oh, you definitely need to see it just to see the Moss Man himself. Yeah. Even the cactus cat has been utilized in various cartoons due to its cute yet mischievous nature. But we can't talk about plant creatures and popular culture without mentioning the favorite of all plant-based characters, Guardian of the Galaxy, Groot. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't jump in and talk yeah, about him right from the beginning. Yeah, I never even thought about Groot. He's, he's, he's too good. He's not well, a monster. He's, he's an extraterrestrial tree being. So he's very similar to the vegetable man. But he, instead of sucking the blood out of hunters, uh, Groot teams up with the Marvel Comics, Guardians of the Galaxy, and various films and comic books. The most remarkable characteristics is that the only thing he ever says is, I am Groot. There you go. Which is meant to convey everything that he wants to say. So there you have it. You have a bunch of cryptids that are plant-based, but are also demonstrated in popular culture. So it's kind of nice to see the similarities between the two. Well, if it was true, it'd be horrifying. How do you know they're not true? Because um, I've never seen one. <laughs> well, I just can't imagine that being true. I mean, come on. We would have found them by now. Well, plant creatures would be harder to find because they could disguise themselves as the foliage around them. Okay. Like Divine Animal Kingdom? Ooh, Divine, which is a, uh, what do they call him, a play actor or um, cast character? actor? I'm no, sorry? Just a character? All right, well, Divine is a character in Animal Kingdom of Disney, and she walks around on stills for her arms and her legs, which makes her very tall and elongated. She's also decorated all in green with vines, and she blends in with the foliage perfectly. And, yeah, she is definitely a great example of camouflage and just appearing out of nowhere and fascinating to see when you do find her. Yeah, she's amazing. Well, it is weird to imagine creatures that blend animals with plants in origin. I mean, we look to the forest and we do realize that it can be dangerous out there, but it does capture our imagination. We never know what is truly out there beyond the edges of our manicured backyards. Perhaps there are plants that are watching us. <laughs> I did want to add one little bit of last bit of information that it seemed relevant to this subject. So I want to tell you about a very real place of the most dangerous plants known to men. The Alnwick Garden of Northumberland, England, plays host to the small but deadly Poison Garden. Oh. This is a real place that's filled exclusively with more than 100 
toxic, intoxicating, and narcotic plants. It's open to the public, but the boundaries of the poison garden are kept locked behind black iron gates and are only opened on guided tours. Visitors are strictly prohibited from smelling, touching, or tasting any plants because pretty much everything in there can kill you. Some people still occasionally faint from inhaling toxic fumes while walking in the garden. Oh, well, that's got to be a liability. I'm not sure if that's hype or if that actually happens. but You have to sign a waiver before the guided tour. Well, there is a sign on the black iron gates that says, These plants can kill. <laughs> and it's emblazoned with a skull and crossbones for good measure. That's awesome. So I think it's time to go water the lawn and make our way back out from within the mist. As a reminder, we are on social media and would love to hear your stories and opinions about plant creatures. Were they real or are they just imaginations of shadows jumping across the forest? <laughs> you can reach us on our Facebook page, Within the Mist Podcast. We are also on Instagram and Twitter. Plus, we have an email at withinthemistpodcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your stories. We hope you enjoyed our plant cryptid stories and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, look closely at that tree during your walk through the forest and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. See you next time.